0: Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 10 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, hear God's holy word. And when he called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Levius whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's pray. The reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask you that as we read about how your Son, our Savior, called these twelve apostles to him and sent them out, that we too would be called up in this great mission that uh, is still going on. To call all nations to repent and turn to King Jesus. Father, strengthen us now with your Spirit as we hear and receive this word so we might properly apply it and obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some of our most delightful and most beloved stories center around a seemingly impossible mission which requires the assembly of a team of misfits who work together to accomplish their goal, whatever that goal is, like rescuing someone from a heavily guarded fortress or pulling off a heist of something precious that's been stolen and they're trying to get it back or throwing a magic ring into a, a volcano. For all of these missions, you need a team. For it to be an effective team, you can't have seven or eight of the same guy. You need a great diversity of skills, and background. So there's always this great section of a book or a movie where the main protagonist tries to find the right person to fulfill each need of the team, to fill each spot. You need the brains, you need the muscle, you need the weapons expert and the computer hacker and the martial arts guy or the elf or the dwarf or or whatever that you need to make up your team. But none of them are perfect. On their own, none of them are complete. And some of them don't get along with each other. And the friction comes when their talents and their knowledge work against each other. Normally, one of the big early turning points in in any great story is the call to action. Every story has a need, some mission, and then the hero has this call to action that he uh, feels led to, to go pursue this. And you get several of these moments When a team is assembled, the opportunity for these little character moments when someone realizes that they have a purpose, that there's a problem, and that they're a part of the solution. What's also great about these team-up movies or these team-up books, these stories, is you get to watch characters from conflicting viewpoints and different backgrounds interact they learn to work through disagreements. It's messy. They try things that, that don't work. And then they learn how to collaborate and get something done. It's the stuff that great stories are, are made of. In the Gospels, we get a historical account of how Jesus assembled his team, a, a crew of misfits, indeed, who, who needed to be trained by Jesus and who in three short years began to take over the world. It's quite amazing When you consider what these men were able to accomplish from the time that Jesus called them up through the middle of the first century with the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit, they faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman empire. And the fruit of their labor is that the Christian church soon became established in every corner of the realm. The flourishing of the church today is a continuing testament to the faithfulness of this this handful of men. And similar to the great bands of misfits in our favorite stories, Jesus doesn't call 12 of the same guy. These men are very different from each other. Some of them are extremely outspoken. We hear from some of them a lot, like Peter, like the Sons of Thunder, James and John. Others we don't hear from at all in the Gospels. Some of them are known best by not their gifts, but their personality defects, like cynical Philip. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the first thing we ever hear him say. Doubting Thomas, Uh, cynical Judas, critical Judas. We could have taken that ointment and sold it and given it to the poor. They come from different walks of life. There are men who make an honest living running a family fishing business, Andrew and Peter, James and John. Then there's the tax collector, Matthew, who's assumed by everybody to be making a dishonest living when Jesus calls him. There are political activists, reactionaries, who would have had deep disagreements with the others. Simon, in the New King James that I read, is called a Canaanite. Other translations will will say Canaanian. Simon is called, in other gospels, a zealot. He's just known as Simon the Zealot. Uh, He's part of a Jewish sect that opposed Roman occupation of Judea, Uh, and and, and so the the zealots were working to incite the people of Judea to violence, to take back their home from Rome by force of arms. Judas is called Iscariot, which some scholars point out could mean that he was part of an even tinier splinter sect of zealots uh, called the Sicarii. Is that what... Uh, this title Iscariot means. Is he one of the Sicarii? Um, they're named after the small daggers that they hid inside their cloaks. They would assassinate Roman um, officials with these daggers. They could do their work in large crowds uh, where they could stab someone and then blend back into the, into the rabble. Now imagine what these zealots would have thought of Matthew the tax collector. What would Simon and Judas think of Matthew? What What a compromiser. He's part of the oppression. If Judas had met Matthew in any other context, he might have stuck a dagger in him. And what did the zealots think of the fishermen? Wow, these are naive sheeple. I mean, these are just... You know, they're asleep. And what would the fishermen think of the zealots? Well, they're instigators and they're troublemakers. And yet, Jesus deliberately calls all these men together. He deliberately puts them together and assembles this team, just the right combination that he wants. And now, in Matthew 10, as we've studied, after teaching them the core values of his kingdom, after doing 10 miraculous acts that we've seen over the last couple of chapters, the uh, 10 miracles of deliverance and healing and cleansing and casting out demons, after enduring the criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees, as we've also seen, as he's demonstrated the proper response to all of that criticism, now he says to these 12 men, they are ready to go. He launches them out to the cities of Judea with some specific marching orders, and these orders take up all of chapter 10, which is my goal to read it all today and to comment as we go. So if you have your Bible open in front of you, we're going to work through chapter 10 uh, today. Last week, we read the end of chapter 9, where Jesus observed that Israel was weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And there he commented to his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this um, harvest that Jesus is talking about, is a very specific reference to the coming reckoning, the great harvest that is soon to happen at the end of the age of the old covenant. The priority of the apostles is going to be to reap that remnant of faithful, believing Israel, to, to, to gather in the wheat to separate them from the chaff, to separate them from the tares of unbelieving, idolatrous Israel. And so if they had prayed this prayer that Jesus taught them to pray at the end of um, chapter nine, to pray that uh, the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest, 12 of them are answers to their own prayer. 12 of them answer the call. As we open chapter 10, Jesus now sends out laborers into that harvest. To this point in Matthew's gospel, a great growing crowd of people had amassed around Jesus, forming this great circle of disciples, people going with him from place to place. All of them were considered disciples. If they loved Jesus, if they listened to him, if they worshiped him and and followed him in good faith, um, they were disciples, which just means followers or students. Out of these disciples, Jesus chooses 12 who are apostles. Disciples means followers. Apostles, though, means sent ones. These 12 have a special ordination and mission and authority. So we see this development, the switch from disciple to apostle, in just the first couple of verses here in chapter 10. When he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. Heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. So there's a special ordination that's happening here to these 12 that are called out. Matthew's only gonna use the word apostles one more time in his gospel. Several other times he'll refer to them as the 12 or the 12 disciples, but we know it's these special 12 called out sent ones. Uh, They have a special mission, a special authority. And and, um, over the last few chapters, we've seen Jesus establish his authority over demons. He's established his authority over sickness and disease. And now he delegates that authority to these men. They will now exercise his authority in his spirit as they go out with the good news of the kingdom. Matthew lists their names in pairs. Did you notice that uh, in, uh, in verse two through four? He, he pairs them up. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus sent them out two by two. Jesus didn't send them out individually. He didn't send out 12 men on solo journeys they go out in these smaller teams. They go out two by two so that they could back each other up, so that they could encourage each other, so they could help each other. This is a wise practice. It continues into the book of Acts that when missionaries go out, they go two by two, teams of two. And by listing them this way, it's possible that Matthew is giving us the pairings. Who went with who? And what's interesting is that this means that the four fishermen went together, and among the fishermen... The brothers went together. Peter and Andrew are one team. James and John are another team, if this is how Matthew is listing them. It also means the zealots are together. Simon and Judas are together. So it looks like maybe Jesus isn't forcing them to stretch too much at this point. They uh, they go with their brothers. They go with what they know. They go with their closest friends, uh, though before too long, they're gonna need to learn how to get along with each other in broader groups. Eventually, they're gonna have to learn how to incorporate the Apostle Paul, extend grace to him, and then even more by incorporating Gentiles into the church. But for now, it looks like they get to partner up with the people closest to them, and perhaps Jesus, just knowing their frames and knowing their limitations, doesn't want anything to get in the way of this mission and its success. Now, having called them to himself, Jesus directs them where to go. Let's pick up in verse five. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey nor two tunics nor sandals nor staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. First, Jesus says, don't go to the territory of the Gentiles. Don't go to the cities of the Samaritans. I'm sending you to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, now didn't Jesus just praise the faith of a Roman centurion? Hasn't he been referencing the prophets that said all the Gentile nations are going to flood into the kingdom? What about the wise men that Matthew told us about at the beginning of the gospel, the wise men coming from a far country to worship the boy Jesus? Isn't there enough evidence that the nations are ready for the gospel? Why this narrow focus right now? Well, because there is an immediate and urgent need for the promised Messiah of the kingdom of Israel, for the son of David to be revealed to Israel, God keeps his covenant to Israel by broadcasting the gospel to Israel first. The faithful remnant that is left of Israel must hear the message and have an opportunity to repent before it's too late. Several years after this, Paul is gonna write to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God uh, to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. The gospel goes to the Jew first. And, and so far, all the Gentiles who have come, they've come on their own initiative. They haven't been sought out. Uh, Jesus hasn't gone looking for them. They have come looking for him. And the priority right now is for Israel's king to deliver Israel, to come to faithful Israel, for them to join him and for him to deliver them into the new age, to keep the centuries old promises that God has made to his people. Uh, After the resurrection, uh, Jesus is going to commission his men to go out to all nations. He's going to commission the church to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. But for now, the focus is on the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. And Jesus stresses that as they go out, they must go out to give, not to take. They must not, as they go out, they must not get the reputation of being hucksters and religious con men who were just out there to fleece the sheep. They're out there to feed the sheep. So he tells them, you have the power to heal and cleanse and raise the dead and cast out demons. Use these gifts liberally, you, freely who have been uh, given and so freely give. But as you go out, I don't want you looking like you've got a lot of status. I don't want you to swagger around like you're one of the religious elite doling out favors to your rich Buddy. So don't take cash and don't take provisions. Don't even take a bag that you can stuff treasures in. Uh, people are going to try to give you things. You, don't, you can say, I don't, I don't have a way to carry it. I don't need it. I don't want that. I'm not going to take it from you. That's the attitude that he wants them to have. Expect that in the cities you go to, Jesus says, the people you heal and the people you preach to are going to feed you. They're going to put you up, but the gospel is free. The gospel is, is not for sale. The healing is free. You aren't charging for that. And I don't want you to even look like you are. And he has more to say about this in verse 11. He says, now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire in it who is worthy and stay there till you go out. So when you get to a city or a town, you ask around about who is going to keep you, who's going to put you up. And when you get there, stay in that house. I don't want you skipping around between houses, uh, getting a better offer and a better offer and a better offer until you're staying in the house of the mayor or the richest guy in town. When you go to town, find a place to stay and stay there, commit to that house. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The work that these apostles are doing is sifting work. They're separating the wheat from the chaff. They're picking the good grain and mowing down the tares. Uh, There are some places they're going to go, they're going to be gladly received. People are going to be happy to see them. There are going to be some places they go where they're going to be turned away. Either way, either way, the gospel goes out and accomplishes its intended purposes, either salvation or condemnation, but it's always effective. It's important that we read the gospels within the context of the judgment that is coming for Jerusalem and not to forget that. That's what Jesus is referencing Especially when he mentions the judgment that's coming in Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, "You would have rather been in Sodom than in Jerusalem when I come in judgment against it." Sodom's judgment looks to have been rather rather swift. The suffering of Jerusalem is going to be dragged out. It's going to be awful. Jerusalem has the greater condemnation because they were in covenant with God and yet rejected the very son of God. They reject their king. So that looming sense of coming disaster, the urgency hangs over Jesus' words here. And indeed, it hangs over his entire ministry. And so he doesn't sugarcoat the situation that he's sending them into. This is going to be treacherous. The men who do not receive the apostles are not going to be... Benignly disinterested. They're they're not just going to ignore them. They're going to be hateful and they're going to be violent. The opponents of the gospel are going to be hateful and violent. Pick up in verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to their councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another for assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the son of man comes at the start When the apostles first see the miraculous power of Jesus, everyone is amazed. When he calms the storm, when he heals sickness, when he raises a little girl from the dead, there had to have been this buzz of excitement. This is unbelievable. This is incredible. Have you ever seen anybody like this? And now that Jesus is giving them that same authority, they may have been tempted to think, we are unstoppable. Nothing is going to get in our way. And to temper that, Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And they may respond, no big deal, that's not a problem. We have these miraculous powers. Everybody's gonna be happy to see us. They're gonna roll out the red carpet whenever we come to town. And Jesus says, they're gonna drag you before kings and councils and governors and judges. And they're gonna say, well, won't everybody be happy to see us when we come to town? It's gonna be exciting. And Jesus says brother is going to deliver brother to death and a father his child. Don't fear those who kill the body. Whoa, wait a minute. Who said anything about killing? What do we get ourselves into now? Jesus warns them, though, that every sphere of human authority is going to oppose them. When they take the gospel to these cities, every sphere of human authority is going to oppose them. The state is going to oppose them, the church is going to oppose them, and the family is going to oppose them. The state is going to persecute them. The state is threatened by the gospel. Jesus says you're going to be brought before councils and kings. When that happens, Jesus encouraged them, don't worry about what you're going to say. My Father's Spirit is going to give you the words just as he promised Moses. Remember, God promised Moses, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. It's pretty intimidating when you think about standing in front of royalty or standing in front of people with a lot of power and earthly authority, you think, well, I've got this one chance. Maybe I'm not going to be as articulate as I like. Maybe I'm going to fumble around. Maybe I'm going to mess up. And Jesus says, no, I want you to be confident that God's Holy Spirit is going to use each one of these events for his glory. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Be confident. But the state is going to put them in that situation to do that. The state is going to persecute them. The church is going to persecute them. That is, who is the the institution of of the covenant of God in this point in history? Well, it's the synagogue. And the synagogue, the people who are in covenant with God objectively, that sphere of human authority is going to oppose them. Jesus says you're going to be scourged. You're going to be whipped in the synagogues. That Jewish uh, religious establishment for the most part in this time in history is an empty, lifeless shell propping up idolatrous practices, deliberately avoiding keeping God's law while pretending that they are keeping it and they don't like to be called out. They don't like to be told that they're not obeying the same God that they're trying to teach everybody else to obey and and to uh, cause everybody to believe that they have this exclusive access to God Um, and and so Jesus warns them that nobody's gonna like it. When these synagogues, when you come preaching this gospel, they're gonna oppose you and they're gonna scourge you. And then Jesus also says they can expect that their family is going to persecute them. Their loved ones are gonna think that they're crazy, and their loved ones are not gonna listen. Family members are even gonna be complicit in their death. Every sphere of authority is going to oppose them because every sphere of human authority is confronted by the gospel. Every sphere of authority is currently in rebellion. It's out of accord with God's order. When human authority, when human rulers are under God's authority and in submission to God's law, authority is a blessing. It brings peace. It's life-giving. Every sphere of human authority apart from submission to God's order, is a curse and sets itself up as a rival to the kingdom of Jesus. When human institutions are out of order, be it the family or the church or the state, when human institutions are out of order or disordered, they tend to set themselves up as false saviors, false messiahs, demanding the allegiance and the fidelity that is due only to King Jesus. None of the spheres of human authority are neutral. The family's not a neutral institution. Either the family is in submission to God, obeying God, or it is a rival to Christ. There is no such thing as good old family values when those family values are not objectively shaped by the gospel, explicitly shaped by the gospel. The state, of course, we know this, the state is not a neutral institution. Either the state is in submission to God or it sets itself up as its own God And it sets itself up as the only authority on on heaven and earth, the highest authority in existence. The church herself must always be in submission to and in obedience to the Lord Jesus, or she's going to be judged as well. She's confronted with the gospel. I, I appreciate how the Belgic Confession of 1561 defines the marks of a true church. I think this is important enough to read and to revisit every once in a while. Um, to, to remind ourselves the, um, the, the commitment and the, um, the necessity of the reformation of the church uh, consistently. Uh, the Belgic Confession defines the marks of a true church like this. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, If church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known from which no man has a right to separate himself. So what what are the marks of the true church? Well, the marks are the pure preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the consistent exercise of church discipline. Those are the marks of the true church. But I love how it continues. The Belgic Confession uh, says, As for the false church, she ascribes more power and authority to herself and her ordinances than to the word of God, and will will not submit herself to the yoke of Christ, neither does she administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from them as she thinks proper. She relieth more upon men than upon Christ and persecutes those who live wholly according to the word of God and rebuke her for her errors, covetous and idolatry. See, what happens is the false church persecutes those who confront the false church with her errors. And then it ends with this little line. This is, I think they call this a mic drop moment. <laughs> these two churches, these two churches are easily known and distinguished from one another. The point of all this is that the church herself is not above correction and reformation, and is a source of opposition to the gospel, as we see in our day, with an entire, entire branches of the church going headlong into perversion and preaching the spirit of the age, preaching pop culture and pop psychology over the word. And then reviling and mocking Bible believers. The need of our day is the reformation of the church. If we don't have a reformed, faithful church, how will the family be discipled? How will the state be discipled? In Jesus' time as well, all of these, all of these authorities are disordered, and all of them oppose the apostles, and all of them are a source of opposition and persecution. The family, the state, the church, all oppose the, the preaching of the gospel. And the strategy Jesus gives them at this time, what they're supposed to do is if they're opposed, just leave, just get out. When they persecute you in one place, go to the next. Escape is often a biblical response to persecution. And practically, Jesus adds that you've got more places to go than time to get to all of them. You're not even gonna get to all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes in judgment. Against this place. Let's pick up in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Um, If the Pharisees have attributed the works of Jesus to Satan, if they said he casts out demons by the Lord of the demons, what do you think they're going to say about you? If they say that about Jesus, how are they going to treat you? You are not going to be treated better than they treated Jesus. Make no mistake, it is not safe to follow Jesus. He tells them in John 16, he tells his disciples, he say, says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he does God's service. That's, how, that's the level of insanity and delusion that they're facing as they go out with the gospel. However, Jesus says, don't fear. Verse 26, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be made known. Don't think, don't ever, ever, ever think that anybody gets away with anything. Don't fear the conspiracies of men thinking that God doesn't know what they're doing in the hidden places, and so they're getting away with all this stuff, and we're gonna uh, uh, wring our hands and get... Terribly sick over it. God sees and God knows and God will avenge. He sets everything right and everybody's going to stand before his throne in judgment. Don't ever forget that, much less don't ever fear that anyone is getting away with anything. It looks like some people get away with things in this life. And sometimes the plots of the wicked look like they just come out just fine for them. They turn out in their favor, but they don't. Jesus says everything that is hidden is exposed. Take great comfort in that. And remember, at the same time, we aren't the society that does hidden things. We don't have secret knowledge. We're not a, not a secret society. We aren't sneaking around doing hidden things, plotting things like the wicked. He, the things that Jesus teaches them privately are meant for public consumption. He says in verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. It seems like in just a few phrases, Jesus says, uh, don't fear, do fear, don't fear. What's he saying? This is critical. And it's really important to understand what Jesus is warning against here. He's outlining two different categories of enemies. There are the obvious enemies, Rome, Herod, the rulers of the synagogue. They were the ones who had the power to kill the body. And Jesus said, don't fear them. But there are other darker spiritual enemies who have the power to destroy the soul who are at war for the souls of the people of Israel at that moment. Those darker demonic powers are using the obvious enemies as a cover. And not only that, the demonic powers are manipulating the wicked human powers in such a way to frustrate and anger the faithful in Israel. And so the oppression of the wicked, visible, earthly human powers frustrates the faithful in Israel. Uh, To provoke them in their their desire for justice, in their their desire for righteousness, in their their desire for, for vengeance, they're provoked into fighting darkness with more darkness. Various forms of Roman oppression are just baited hooks to provoke angry, frustrated zealots into self-destructive violence. And that's how Jerusalem becomes a smoking crater within just a few decades. That's how it gets there because of this, uh, the, these zealots taking the bait that uh, uh, R- Rome throws out there, which demonic powers are, are, are uh, dangling in front of them. And Jesus says to his men, watch out, avoid this. And balance that legitimate vigilance And that that awareness of demonic forces balance it with patience and trust. Your father in heaven is not ignorant of the tyrants and the oppressive empires, nor is he turning a blind eye to your situation. he, He says your father in heaven knows how many hairs you have on your head. So do not fear, rather be bold. Verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't ever, ever, ever be embarrassed of the name of Jesus. Don't ever bury the gospel inside some other initiative or agenda. Don't ever hide your identity as a Christian. Be upfront and honest about who your king is, about who your savior is, and the way that he confesses your name before his father, so confess his name before men. And yeah, that's going to put you into all kinds of difficult and conflict-filled, hard situations. That's The point, verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the first time we uh, have a reference to the cross in Matthew's gospel. It's the first time Jesus talks about the cross, but he's not talking about his own cross. He's talking about the cross of the people who follow him. And this is not just a generalized statement about suffering. You know, I've got an illness. This is my cross to bear. Or I've got this hard relationship. That is my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about, Um, though though God does send difficult circumstances to sanctify us, um, I don't think that's the subject here. He's talking about this very specific danger of following him and the losses, the very real losses we endure and the opposition disciples face, even the violent, hateful response you get as a result of doing what God says. Opposition and persecution for righteousness, that's the cross. When you proclaim the kingdom of Jesus, when you work to heal the sick, when you raise the dead and drive out demons, when you cleanse impurities, expect that fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, daughters and sons will turn against you because you are following Jesus. Apostates, false Christians will oppose you and will call you all kinds of names, thinking they're doing God a favor. All sorts of government officials and and city council members will not appreciate what you're doing. And they'll do everything they can to stop you. That's the reality of following Jesus. And for these 12 men, the cross that Jesus warns them about is literally a cross. Uh, The Romans are going to put them on crosses if they keep it up. Now, not everybody... Is called like these 12 disciples, like these 12 apostles, not everybody is called to put themselves in the same treacherous frontline circumstances. There are others whose duty is to support them and to encourage them. And Jesus recognizes the gifts and the calling and the contributions of those who support them as well. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he should by no means lose his reward. As we go out through these cities, there are many who are going to have opportunity to participate in the mission of the apostles by doing something as simple as giving them a bed or providing them a meal or even a cup of cold water, and Jesus says they too are going to receive the blessing of God. There were a lot of disciples following Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus separated out just 12 of them. He gave them a very specific territory to target. He gave them precise marching orders for how he wanted those people reached. So this is not a direct set of commands for every follower of Jesus in every age. Not even every disciple in that age got all of these Uh, commands, all these directives. And yet it's still vitally instructive to us. It shows us the, the urgency of Christ, the reality of the enemies of the kingdom of heaven, and the total life commitment of following Jesus. Jesus has called these 12 men out to follow him from here all the way to the cross, all the way to Jerusalem. He's called them to come sleep on the same ground to eat the same food, to breathe the same air, to have this intimate knowledge of who Jesus was and what his mission is all about. Now, here he sends them out for a brief time to go do these short-term mission tours and to come back to go practice what they've seen him do, go imitate him, and then return, come back and learn some more. And throughout the course of walking with Jesus over these next several months, they are able to develop such a deep connection to Jesus, such an intimate knowledge of who he is that when it comes time for them to step up and for them to carry out this mission after the resurrection, um, they look and they sound and they act just like Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John heal a lame man, there's this chaotic scene at the temple and Peter gives an answer for what just happened. And then we read, Luke tells us, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they, and, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. These guys act just like Jesus. These disciples are just like their teacher people in Matthew's gospel, we've read it so far in this study, they're always marveling at the authority of Jesus, marveling at the power of Jesus. And after Pentecost, everyone recognizes that same confidence, that same meekness, that same strength in the apostles. Oh yeah, they're acting just like Jesus. I know who they're imitating. It's obvious who they've been with, which tells me that if you are encouraged by, if you are challenged by these rousing calls to discipleship, if you are willing to take up your cross, if you're not afraid of the opposition of the enemy and you're ready to go charge the gates of hell before you launch, you need to spend time with Jesus. And I mean by that, put yourself in a position of a disciple entirely submitted to Jesus to hear and to obey what he has said. Have an intimate, deeply personal relationship with Jesus through his church. Eat the meat of God's word. Invest yourself in learning and knowing the Father's law. Understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Commune with the triune God. Walk with Jesus so that when you're in a position to speak up, when you do get an opportunity to go on offense, that what comes out of your mouth is gospel truth. And what comes out of your mouth is Bible. Otherwise, we find ourselves fighting all kinds of cultural wars on battlefields that Satan has picked out using his weapons to fight them. Uh, See, you know this. the, The gospel is offensive, but not everything that's offensive is the gospel. The gospel puts you in conflict, but not everything confrontational is the gospel. And if you don't walk with Jesus, you can still easily find yourself in all kinds of conflict. It's not difficult to start an argument. It's easy to create arguments over economics or politics or science. It's easy. It doesn't take any biblical wisdom to go to war on those things. But you've noticed this. and I know you've seen it in any environment. When you bring up the gospel, when you name the name of Jesus, the air in the room changes. That's, uh, something different happens when you, when you name the name of Jesus. You're on a whole other level, and you start to see the real conflict. That's when you're in the fight that matters, and you prepare for that by being with Jesus. I understand your revulsion and your frustration. The wickedness of our generation is revolting. The darkness is oppressive and it is suffocating. Every single day brings a new outrage. You think you've seen it all. No, wait till tomorrow. You haven't seen it all. There's something else. But we must never substitute frustration or feistiness or our own anger for the gospel. Man's anger is no replacement for taking up our cross and walking the way that Jesus walked, fighting the way that Jesus fought, opposing evil, the way that Jesus opposed evil. We don't have another option. We have no other power. We have no other authority, no other commission, no other promise of success than the way that Jesus shows his disciples. This is it. This is all there is. It's the way of Jesus or it's just more idolatry. The world's got plenty of that. Let's follow the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we pray that you grant us your spirit, that you cause us uh, to open our mouths, to preach and speak the gospel in every opportunity that we have, just as you promised these apostles. We pray the same for us, that you would give us the word to say, and that you would use our, our recitation of truth. Uh, in ways that, that are, are for, for blessing or for judgment, but in every way is always efficacious, always achieves the purposes that you design. So, Father, we are eager to be used as vessels in, in, in your purposes. Father, uh, strengthen us for that by, by rooting us in your word and granting us your spirit and sweet fellowship and communion with your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.